If I had a book of all of my failures, it would way outweigh the book of all my successes. But the successes that I've got now with a multi-million pound company and whatever, it's not that I'm successful, it's that I've failed so many times, but I've got back up from those failures. Welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. Every week, I'm talking to thought leaders around the world who are knee deep in their work, tackling some of the biggest problems in the world. And you know, some of them are just great business people who we can all listen to and learn from. And still all of them, even though they are up against it day after day, they think the world and the future is still bright. Well, we need to know what they know. We need to see what they see. We need to understand how they look at obstacles and see opportunity. And that is how you get to a life where you feel like you matter and you can get excitement about what's possible every day. So hello, my name is Dr. Linda Ulrich. I'm the founder of Ever Widening Circles. Ever Widening Circles is a constellation of platforms, four or five, that are all aimed at shining a light on insight and innovation going uncelebrated. And experience tells me that there is now an enormous wave of goodness and progress happening in the world that no one knows about. But we're changing that. And on this podcast, you'll hear from people who can teach us how they found purpose and how they maintain a view of possibility that just keeps them going and going, step after step every day. And today we're going to talk to Jason Connolly. Oh my gosh, what a fabulous storyteller, a great entrepreneur. We're going to have to figure out how to tell Jason's story and get all the insights that he has taken time after time after time from setbacks. So welcome, Jason. Jason, by the way, has the number one lawyer agency in the UK for recruitment of attorneys. And while that sounds like a topic that a lot of us can't connect with, you will connect with Jason's story. So welcome, Jason. Thank you, Dr. Linda, for having me. I'm so excited and blessed to be here. Oh, I tell you, I'll just on this right up. Jason and I have been talking already for an hour just to get a scope of how and why he seems to have the finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world and what we should know to navigate in these in these times. So I was on Jason's podcast and it was such a joy that we, after we turned off the recording, I said, oh, you got just got to be online. So here we are today. And Jason, you've shared with me an extraordinary story of growing up in not such an advantage situation. And then over and over and over picking yourself up and dusting yourself off and starting again. Oh, yes. I mean, give us a little snippet that you come from ordinary folk, right? Mm, yeah. My mum had me when she was uh, just turned 18 and I grew up in London, but not in a, we, we call it a council estate, but you, Dr. Linda, have educated me, but there's a different name for it over the pond where you are. We call it affordable housing. Affordable housing. We call it council estate. And I, we grew up there and my mum had me when she was 18. I went to not very good schools. I remember actually my mum tells me the story, but she, my stepdad was the landlord and she was the lodger. And when we got back from the hospital, all her stuff was outside on the doorstep because she couldn't pay her rent. So then we ended up going from place to place to place to place to place growing up. And I went to schools that, as I said to you before, were not inspiring at all. And 
I, I, I <laughs> one of my uh, school experiences was I went to a school which I later found out was in the bottom three schools in the country. It was bulldozed down a couple of years after I left, and no one was chaining themselves to the gates uh, to stop it. I think people were glad to get rid of it, let it go. And my, I'd never done anything like science practicals. We used to just there was no books um, a lot of the time, and it was really every lesson was just an opportunity for people to misbehave so I, there was a couple of good teachers but on the whole my upbringing was modest it was a struggle to um you know my mum covered and uh, me and my brother in love but yeah and I never felt that we didn't have money it was never something that really crossed my mind I, I was aware right. of the fact that sometimes you know I was wear, wearing the battered school shoes and stuff like that but yeah that that's kind of the very early days mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing that we all have in common if you come from a situation my husband grew up in a situation where it's seven brothers and sisters his dad laid tile they didn't know that they didn't have much they had each other things always seemed to work out <laughs> so you probably had a pretty good mom if she was not adding to this feeling of scarcity mm, yeah my mum would do jobs and um uh, eventually my mum met my stepdad uh, and we it, it was always a struggle but I, I was I wasn't kind of really aware of the situation of what we kind of didn't have until I got to those kind of 12 13 year old and you know children are you know particularly right. cruel at times mm-hmm. and that's when I was much more aware and then I kind of had that I've always had this drive in me to to make money but I think it's because I always wanted to provide for mm. my mum and because there was ah. such a small age difference between us I think at times you know my mum always says it now you know you were like the parent at times and ah. you know I used to see my mum making mistakes a lot you know because she was only young even when I was five years old she was 23 and yes. I'd see her make these mistakes and I was very kind of protective of my yeah. mum and you know I'll come on to the fact we work together now later that's been a a challenge and a half at times (laughs) okay so this story has so many twists and turns but it doesn't start out with the lap of luxury or a lot of privilege but from the very beginning you found something that you were good at that could lead you sort of one step to the next to the next to climbing somewhere different and it was magic tell Mm. us about this magic that came into your life about age 15 yeah so when I was at school I was always very aware of the fact and I used to say to my mum in the evenings I used to say I don't think I'm going to get GCSEs I'm really worried about what I'm going to do next you know I'm being told that you know GCSEs are really important but you know I just none of the teachers are teaching me properly but I'd, I'd always had this ability to make money even when I was in primary school I started selling bracelets and um, at lunchtime all the kids wanted them they all wanted these bracelets that I was selling and making money from but I was very into performing magic and it was something that I'd been doing since I was about 13 years old and I used to just love performing and I uh, I remember I flyered around a local area and then performed at a nursing home but it really started to take off for me when I was uh, <laughs> about 16 but I was very good at self-publicity I used to when my mum was at work and me and my brother was at home I would call up local papers when I was 14 and get them to come around and write articles about me uh, to try and generate more business and I don't I don't really know where that came from but I think I've always had this knack of um, being able to grab people's attention not always necessarily for the, the right way but you know it's <laughs> got me into a lot of good situations as well as bad but I so what I did was when I was on study leave from school they didn't tell us when the study leave was because it was too unsafe because people would bring all sorts of 
crazy things to school. So it was just one afternoon. They brought us all in and they said, right, today is study leave day. Um, and it's everyone was let go. And then I thought, right, I've, I've already kind of come to the conclusion that I'm not going to get any GCSEs. And I decided to start performing magic on the streets. And then I went to a friend of mine and he said, you realise, because I said, oh, I'm making quite good money here, actually. And he said, well, this is nothing compared to London. And I remember one day I, I didn't tell my mum I was going to London because she would have absolutely gone absolutely berserk if she found out. Because at that time I was living in Kent. She'd have gone mad if she found out I got on a train and gone to London. But I, I turned up one morning really early and started busking on the Covent Garden and I... I, I remember I made really good money that day and that was kind of where it started. And when everyone went, we had to go back to school for study leave, very smartly dressed man came up to me and he said, uh, you're very good at what you do. And he said, I work for this. He was a very posh man. He said, I work for this entertainment agency and I think you would do really well auditioning for us. And then I sort of said, oh, I don't really know how it works. And he said, well, how it works is we have a roster of clients. And then he started talking through that um, he takes, they take 40%. And I thought, 40%? I'm getting all my, I don't even have enough free time as it is for my work. So I said, oh, no, I don't think that's for me, but thank you. Anyway, a few weeks um, later, we crossed paths again with this man and he came up to me and said, listen, I don't think I properly explained it the first time. Yes, we take 40% and he, he asked me how much I typically earn, which I was a bit taken aback by. But I said to him, well, this is how much. And he said, no, you don't understand. The clients we work with, even with the 40%, you could be making five, six, seven times what you're making a night. So obviously that was enough to make me think, oh, perhaps I might have been a bit hasty there. So I went along and kind of the, the rest was history. I went along and then started picking up gigs with all these big, big companies. And it, it was a real acceleration. It was kind of going from tiny little restaurants in, in the back streets of the West End to going to big hotels and big companies and being told that, you know, you shared with me that the magic in your life grew and grew and you became quite successful. You have this hilarious stint where you became a flight attendant for Virgin Airlines mm. and figured out a way to work the magic. Share with us how you, so flight attendant, not making a lot of money, realized that you had this skill that you could now transport all over the world to clubs. Give it, us a little yeah. insight to that window. What that impresses me with was how good you were with transitions. It was true. I think that I've always wanted to be an actor. That was always what I wanted to do when I was young. And I think I was very good at putting on, performing to the audience. That's what, because I was so used to performing. And I'd, I'd always kind of, one other thing as well, I've always felt like a very wise person. I used to get in trouble terribly at school, but always used to thinking I used to know better. And, you know, that was something that, you know, I used to always think I was smarter than some of the teachers, which used to get me in awful trouble. But when I, I saw, eventually Virgin became one of my clients and I started doing bits and pieces for them. And I loved everything about Virgin. I loved the uniform, the, how fabulous it was, how everyone was, it just looked so glamorous. And I, one thing led to another and I managed to get a job there through being slightly cheeky, but then also realising that, you know, I was someone that they wanted in the business. And I, I started as cabin crew and I wasn't making a lot of money, but the job was amazing. But the problem was you had to live in London to fly from Heathrow Airport to make yeah. it to make it work. So I remember I I started doing the job and I came across another cabin crew member and he said, Ah, oh, do you know what? I'm I'm really busy at the moment in between flights because 
I'm doing a lot of um, carpentry work. And I thought, oh, you've got a second job. And he said, well, yeah, we get a lot of days off. You know, when we get back from a flight, we might get three days off and stuff like that. And then I started, something clicked in my brain and I thought, but hang on a minute, we get two days there. So I, one night I went to a really nice hotel somewhere in Manhattan and I was at a bar and I thought, I'm going to go into this bar and just start performing magic. Like back in the old days when I used to do the table magic, because um, it had been a while since I'd done any restaurant stuff. So I went and all of a sudden I had a crowd round and um, people started tipping me and because they, they thought I worked there. And I thought, oh, this is good. This is really good. And I suddenly started thinking, couldn't I just take some work? Because the barman, the manager had come up to me because um, the barman had flagged him over and he said, do you take bookings? And I said, potentially. But I said, I am from England. I'm just here on work. And he assumed I was here performing. So, and, and then I just kind of went along with it. Well, yes, I am. I am performing. And then what I started doing was this started to become a regular thing I loved doing when I went down what we call down route. And I'd get off a plane, go for a few drinks. And then I find it quite a cheap way to get drinks as well, because people would buy you drinks. And I didn't have a lot of money then. I was living a champagne lifestyle on beer money, going to all these fabulous destinations, but not having any money to spend when I got there. So I started performing. And then one thing led to another. I started, decided, well, I, what happened was I got six months in at Virgin Atlantic's cabin crew. And when you hit six months, something amazing happened. You got access to this portal where you could trade one flight for another flight. And you would advertise what flight you've got and what flight you want. And then you could almost go, okay, we swap. And then sometimes people would swap you for money. So you could say, well, I'm, I want to give you money for your flight if someone really wanted to get somewhere. So I suddenly saw this as a massive opportunity. And I thought, oh, I can take bookings now. So I started taking bookings in different locations and swapping flights. And it all seemed to be working out really well. And uh, I said to some of these big hotels and different places. It's fine. You don't have to pay the travel. Someone else is paying for that for you because I'm here doing another event, but you are going to have to pay this and that and this and this expense. So then I start um, having all these different gigs in Hong Kong, in New York, and it was it. I'd started making really good money. It did become quite stressful at one point because I would, I remember there was one distinct time I had a big booking and I was already at Heathrow, turned up ready for my Hong Kong flight, the booking the next day, fantastic, can't wait. And then they said, unfortunately, you're going to Mumbai tonight. Hang on a minute. No, 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 no. I have to go to Hong Kong. No, unfortunately, we've taken you onto the Mumbai flight tonight. And I think, oh, I've already taken the money for that booking. And there was a few funny stories and stuff that would happen. And I remember one time I'd, I'd planned and I did think it was a tight turnaround. I thought, well, New York's only six hours. I've got a performance four hours after I land. I thought, loads of time. And then the flight um, was diverted because of a medical wow. emergency. So there was a few things. But no, I, I combined the two. Eventually, it, it did kind of have to, I did wind it down a bit, but I still done bits and pieces. But you're right. I saw the opportunity and I, I took it and it worked. Okay. So one of the things that you mentioned that you took away from this, because then a whole chapter opens that we can't possibly tell the stories of what you became a police officer Indeed. and then was bullied through that experience to the extreme that you ended up with eight months worth of legal battles yes where you were made to be the villain and in the end the court case took 20 minutes to resolve and you were found not guilty 
on everything. Yeah. I mean, 18 months, this police journey that you went through tortured your life and uh, caused you to make all these, these strange transitions. And I just want to share a few, because I, I want you to get to speak to the lessons in these stories, because I think the lessons we should absolutely make time for. At one point, you told me when you were talking about this, that what happened to the magic was it was a hobby at first, and then it became work. And that somehow, when it became the work, it turns into so much stress yeah. that you had to leave it behind. It sounded like you brought all of the good stuff with you. You, you still were a silly person. In fact, you told me that you got in real trouble at the police academy because you were too silly. Talk to me about how this hobby to work and then what you did find out was how much you love travel. I mean, that is a nice transition. Yeah, I think what I fell out of love with was the pressure to constantly be changing. And, and obviously I was doing this in a very, most magicians would be doing that as their full-time job. They wouldn't be flying around the world, having jet lag, then having to get back on the new time zone, then performing in a venue to do this. And it, it was a lot, but... But I think that the passion has always been to entertain people and it's always been to please people and mm -hmm. always been to make people smile. And I think that's something that's kind of always stuck with me. But I, I love traveling. And I think what my time at Virgin gave me was the ability to really understand how to communicate with people. And that's what ultimately got me the job in the police. And it was the fact there'd be different cultures. And I used to be, I've always had this really weird ability, but I'm really good at emotional intelligence and psychology. And not on an academic level, but I just understand things like, you know, that, that natural pause, how to get the best out of it, how to get people talking, how to find common ground. And I used to spot things about different flights. I used to think, oh, I always noticed this particular mannerism on, on a Tokyo flight or this happens on a Delhi flight or a Johannesburg flight. And I suddenly started really sort of fine tuning and becoming aware of how to talk to people no matter where they're from. And that was quite powerful. And that's what led me into, into the police ultimately. Well, you know, so one of the things that you're going to see as Jason and I progress through this story, we've, we've left miles of things out here already. And I think you're only like 22 at this stage. <laughs> is that, that you are definitely building on what you were already naturally good at, which was humor, being entertaining. And then you, and then you had an, it sounds like you had a natural business acumen because at these certain points, you, you recognize the good deal, even though it took a leap in this, in your story, you, you started a bunch of things in sales that were failures after the police academy was a total blow up. And then you've got to tell folks about your chapter in spray tanning, because I think this is one of the best little, okay, this guy has got business in his blood. Tell us about this. So I think you're right. I've always had to an ability to spot opportunity mm -hmm. and I think that inherently comes from not having a lot and that's still even when you start getting a lot you still uh, if you've not come from a lot you kind of I've had that ability to spot opportunity but what happened was I'd left the police and like you said I had a big legal battle it was an awful time in my life it was um 18 months of absolute hell and I decided I was leaving the police um, I got unanimously found not guilty of a misconduct matter. And I decided I wanted to start again. So I decided to move to Manchester because I wanted to, um, I thought there was opportunity there. And I took a job in recruitment doing sales. But the, the problem was, was I'd taken the job and it was on £18,000. And previously I was earning or almost a double and a half that. So I didn't have enough money was, was the ultimate problem. So 
I, I thought to myself, I'm not earning enough here. And every single month, I'm a thousand pounds down before I've even spent anything. And I thought I need to make cash. So what I started looking at was uh, courses online but, or day courses where I could do something. And I, I realized that people in the north of um, England had a particular um, love of spray tanning and being brown. And it, 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 there was a lot of places doing it. And so I started um, looking into people that were in the, on the weekends. I started looking into places that would do it mobile. And I realized that they were all competing on price. They were all competing, trying to be the cheapest, trying to be and undercut each other on price. And this is just the way my mind works. And I, I thought to myself that the websites are all a bit terrible. They've all got m- mobile numbers. They don't look very professional. So I thought to myself, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a spray tan course, but I'm going to charge double what everyone else charges, but have a premium website. So I decided to uh, call the business if you can call it a business, um, Spray Tan Fairies. And I created this really nice website with a little Tinkerbell kind of character. And it looked very, very, very um, bold and different, but it looked very premium. And I went and I'd done a day course on how to use the spray tan gun. And it was a very, very premium product. So what I really plugged was my products are premium. It's the best tan. And because I'd been on the day course, I was allowed to use the logo of this product, Fate Bay, which was a good brand. So what I started doing was all of a sudden, I I remember I actually um, got some things on my car as well that said spray tan fairies. So I was driving this around Manchester all the time. And what I found was in not a lot of time, my website, because I was really conscious I wanted get my website is it on google yet is it on google yet this was about um, 10 years ago uh, must be about eight years ago and i started is it on google and then i thought oh, i'm on google page five and i started reading about how do you get the website ranking higher so i started posting more stuff on it and in not a lot of time i started getting quite a lot of calls so what would typically happen is i would do a day at work And then I would finish at six o'clock, having started at 7.30, because you'd have to be in early in the morning in sales. That was programmed into me. You have to be in at 7.30. So I would finish work at six o'clock. I would immediately run across town. I would grab my spray tan gun and I would start spray tanning people. Now, what tended to happen was I start, because I was charging more, I was actually appealing to um, people in very big houses in, in Cheshire. So I would go and I would spray tan. And this would probably be about 7.30, the first one. Then I'd have another one at 8.30. Then I'd have another one at 9 o'clock. And honestly, people were going so crazy for it. I was still doing 10 o'clock bookings at people's house. With, and I'd say, have you got any better lighting? Because it's a bit dark. I can't really see what I'm spraying on you. And I did think, this, my mum used to say to me, do, do they not mind these ladies getting sort of topless in front of a man? I said, oh, no, because you know I'm gay. It's fine. It's called spray tan fairies. And then before I knew it, I'd do spray tan parties. But the problem was, was, obviously I've got to be working during the day doing recruitment and sales I wasn't making enough money so the spray tans were just as important as the recruitment to get food on the table at night so I'd have to keep my phone would keep ringing during the day my spray tan phone I'd have to sort of run to hello spray tan place yes I could take a book in medicine <laughs> but the problem was I didn't know Manchester very well because I'm not from Manchester so I'd, I'd take one booking and then realise put it into the sat nav and go oh 
oh no, this is in the wrong direction to where the last one was. So I'd find myself driving all the way back around Manchester, then I'd put in the next post, kind of realise I'm back in the other direction. And that was my life. I'd work till 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, doing spray tans, making, you know, sometimes 100 and whatever pounds a day. And then I would go back and do recruitment during the day. And I managed to, I'd done that for at least 10, 11, 12 months. And I got so busy. It was quite funny, actually, because I, I had the same mobile number, cell phone number, until v, until not so long ago. And even then, I was still getting spray tan calls about five years later, even though <laughs> I'd shut it all down. Well, that's what you could do a spray tan in Cheshire, can you? But it, it was just funny. And I, I just remember so many times I've turned up and someone would, I'd love it. Someone would say, oh, we're doing a spray tan party. And I'd be like, oh, how many um, people are there? Ten. Yes. I could afford to I could afford to uh, eat nicely this week. And that that it was just madness, absolute madness. I'd be doing them on Saturday, Sunday. And uh, yeah, it was I think I managed to spot this opportunity and um, make money, which was what I desperately needed to because I was I was in a lot of debt when I started in the recruitment industry, a lot of debt. And I I, I was going to go under if it wasn't for those spray tans. That, that what really helped me in the mm. early days of recruitment. Well, you know, I, what I love about that story is that, A, you know, it sounds like even though where you're at today, all along the journey, you know, you were just open to the next opportunity. You didn't think anything was beneath you. You just took whatever could put bread on the table and you ran with it. <laughs> it's crazy because I remember I've been a police officer for years and it really kind of did feel like starting again. I kind of started at the very bottom of an industry and, you know, I was getting on towards the end of my 20s by then and I was starting from the very bottom and it but I knew so badly that you know I just thought I know how to talk to people I I know that you know I really believe that I can do this but what I was struggling with was um the fact that you know I think like we all do we build our income up around whatever and by the end of this legal battle that I was in I was left with not a lot of money either so it really was starting again Mm -hmm. um but I've had to start again many times, as 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 we said, and yeah, I've managed to find opportunity. Well, so this is the big takeaway message in a in a roller coaster ride of a life like you. Again, we could just go down numerous rabbit holes. There's another whole chapter of your life where you did get into recruiting and work for an agency with a sounds like a pretty terrible woman. And in the end, even that came to a crash and burn. And when she sued you and you had to sell your house to give her a hundred thousand dollars just to go away. Indeed. (laughs) Oh now that's make it up. You couldn't make it up. And, you know, that story, one of the things that really struck me in that story was this way that we drag trauma with us. Because you told me that you you could have probably won that case and you had a lawyer telling you that you could win that case. But it was worth it to you just to have it be done with. And, yes. and you were so good by then at starting completely over that um, that had some value uh, to be cut free. And then you could see that it was worth $100,000 to you to be able to be set free and not have her after you. And I love in that story that you, um, that in the end, you played what I call the marshmallow game. So I, have you ever heard of the marshmallow test, a really important experiment in the 1960s? I haven't. Please I, can, I wonder <laughs> how good you would have been at it. Okay. So what they did was there was a researcher, very famous. If people put marshmallow test 1960s in their search box, they're going to find the funniest videos. These researchers were saying, I wonder if people, if kids have self-control when they're three, four, five years old, is it a predictor of success in life? 
if they have the ability to resist the immediate rewards. So what they do, put little kids in a soundproof room or, a, or where they think they were alone with a two-way mirror. So the researcher would put a little marshmallow on a plate and then say, if I come back in 10 minutes and that marshmallow is still there, I'll give you another. So you'll have two. So of course, some kids, the researcher wasn't even out the door and they would pop it in. Others, the video, the funny videos are the kids that try it and use all kinds of self-restraint techniques. They turn their back, they touch their tongue to it. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, your whole life to me and all these stories that we could go into are one giant marshmallow experiment. Like you never gave up. You always were okay with just starting again over and over. But you know, what it seemed to me, Jason, in all your stories is that you brought the right things forward with you. It doesn't sound like you left. You, you just kept carrying on all the baggage from all these things. I think you it's the right interesting lessons. because every time I started again, I was wiser and I'd learned from the mistakes of the past. But I think a mistake is only a mistake if you don't learn a lesson from it. And I think that I have had to learn some lessons in the most extreme and awful ways. But by learning those lessons and having that ability to dust myself down, and at times, you know, I've been face down in the gutter thinking, you know, my world is over. But then it's having that ability to turn over so you're looking up from the gutter and then step up and go again. And I think we've every, even when I started again in my late 20s doing recruitment, yes, it was starting again. But I was starting it again with experience and having built all these different skill sets up and developed what I think my natural talents are. And I think everyone's got a, a natural talent. I think sometimes it takes people a while to figure out what that is. And uh, my, my talent is being able to talk to people and it's um, being emotionally intelligent and then how to communicate. But again, just because I've got that talent, it doesn't mean that that I was immediately good at that. It's something that I have to work on and fine tune and get better and I think I've always been very much someone that always wants to develop and get better at what I'm doing and be the best at whatever I'm going to do. And even when I've started again, and it's, uh, you know, when I started recruitment, it was not easy, but I had that much tenacity that, you know, that saying, fake it till you make it. Sometimes you just have to keep going and you just have to keep trying. Even when I started recruitment in, in the legal industry, mm -hmm. I remember I got it into my mind. I used to tell myself every day, and I used to write it down in my little journal and I used to put down, I am the best recruiter in London. I am the best recruiter in London. I used to write it down and down and down and down and down. I used to walk into work. I am the best recruiter in London. I am the best recruiter in London. And I used to tell myself that. And then I used to write on my pad, I am going to be successful. I am going to be successful. I am going to be successful. I am going to make money. I am going to make money. And sometimes I'd write it down like a hundred times. I am going to make money. And I crazy, it, really weirdly, I found this book when I moved a couple of years ago and I'd forgotten all about it. And I look back and I look, oh, oh, some of these things that, that I really believed in start manifesting themselves. And I, I do it now. Sometimes I always, when I wake up every morning, and sometimes I think we all get into these traps where we let things run away with us. And, you know, even now, you know, I've always struggled with anxiety. I can let anxieties and things build up. But then I go back and I go, no, I'm going to tell myself that I appreciate this moment. I appreciate this day. I'm going to make this day count. I'm going to make this day great, you know. And do you know what? I saw something really powerful recently on Facebook. And I know I'm going off on a tangent here. And I didn't, no, know, what, please. I didn't know what I thought of this because it was quite an interesting thing. 
So you could, it's something that you can download. It's a poster. And the poster has all these different dots on it. And every day, you so basically, you put in your age, and it does the average age of a male. And every day, you colour in another circle. And at the end is the age 78, 80, or something like that. And every day, you colour in a circle. And my friend, and I said to my friend, what, what do you think of that, colouring in a circle for every day of your life and seeing the circles get more and more filled? And seeing, but, and she said, well, I see it as running out of days. And I say, oh, well, I see it as making the most of every day. And I said, would you put that on your wall? Is that something you'd want to see? And she said, oh, do you know what? That's a really difficult one. If I don't know if I'd put that on my wall or not. But it really got me thinking about, you know, how we look at each day and what we do in the morning and how we, you know, we get caught up in life and we get caught up in thinking these terrible things are happening and I have had many many terrible things but I think what's always got me up again is that ability that no I'm gonna make it great and you know life is it my life is in my hands and you know and I think this is the big thing with opportunity a lot of people wait for opportunity to knock at their door opportunity is never gonna knock at your door people think luck people are lucky I believe that you create your own luck. The only thing you might be is lucky if you win the lottery. Who? How many people win the lottery? You always see a lot of people say, oh, that person's really lucky. I believe that you create your own luck. You put yourself in the right places and you knock on enough doors. And if you knock on enough doors and you explore enough things, opportunity comes. You know, even with the spray tan thing, it's it's funny now looking back at it, but I kept looking at different things. And then eventually I thought, ah, let's go with that. That seems all right. And I think you've just got to be not afraid to take a chance as well. If, you know, I'm talking about, I haven't talked about half of the failures of things that didn't work, but you know, it's, if something fails, ah, you've tried, you've learned, you know, as long as you've learned something from it, is it a failure? I, you know, I, I spoke to someone recently and they said, ah, my business is failing. It's not doing well. It's not failing. This is a learning experience. You are learning. You, you're learning by failing. <laughs> you know, the funny thing with business as well is, the honestly, if I had a book of all of my failures, it would way outweigh the book of all my successes. But the successes that I've got now with a multi-million pound company and whatever, it's not that I'm successful. It's that I failed so many times, but I've got back up from those failures and that's what's made me successful it the and i've meet people all the time who are successful it's it's not that they're successful it's just that they've learned from the failures they've made and they've not given up the tenacity to keep going and doing what they do that is the essence of how i look at your story in a nutshell and share with us this other cool thing that you told me because this is the perfect time for that and then we're going to go to a really quick break but you at some point said that you gave some credit to having a lot of anxiety because anxiety, ha well, go ahead, talk to us about why anxiety yeah. can be looked at positively. I think I, I've always um, struggled with anxiety and I think it really kind of manifested itself and became a whole new level of anxiety uh, when I was in the police. And that, that was a really stressful time. When I started the police, I, I, I don't think I had huge amounts of anxiety when I was at Virgin, but I, I in the police and from then on, um, because I was in that pressurised sales environment, um, I've always had that that anxiety, that worry, that feeling that, you know, sometimes you think, you know, the amount of times I thought I'm having a heart attack and called an ambulance. It's been crippling at times. And, you know, I've been, I've had devices strapped to me, thought that I've got a heart problem. No, actually it's heart palpitations. It's anxiety. And anxiety, the funny thing about anxiety is a lot of the time it's overthinking. It's worrying about hypothetical situations. 
And that's what, and it's, it's a vicious circle. People worry about hypothetical situations, then it fuels emotions, which fuels behaviors. And then this cycle goes round and round. But anxiety, if used in the right way, that whole kind of ability to think about loads of solutions and problems. I'm one of these people that my brain is like a supercomputer. And if I get a problem, I have to be very careful because if I overthink a problem too much, then it becomes an anxiety. But there's this kind of sweet spot in the middle where I can think of, okay, what is worst case scenario? And then I say to myself, okay, if I start getting anxiety, I say, what is worst case? And then I go, okay. And then what's worse after that? Then what's what's then what does that mean? And what does that mean? And what does that mean? Then I go, oh, if you want to get to the end, it's still not that bad. And the way I kind of deal with it now is I will think of all these different solutions. But if I start getting anxiety, I always ask myself one question. And I say to myself, I have a, a chart, like a tree. It's an anxiety tree. And I say to myself, is this a real problem or is this a hypothetical problem? Is this something that hasn't yet happened? And if it hasn't happened yet, then I say to myself, let it go. Does it need thinking time? No, let it go. If it's a real problem, then I go down my anxiety tree and I say to myself, do I do something about it right now or do I schedule it for later? And then if it's a uh, do something about it now, do that. But if not, schedule it, then let it go. The most challenging part of this is the letting it go part. And what I tend to find the best way for me to let things go is I can listen to meditation and stuff. But the problem is my mind can overpower the meditation. What I have found works is if you um, do something like a crossword or something like a word search, you can't think about these. I don't know what it is. I'm not an expert on the brain, but you can't possibly concentrate on those two things at once. And that's the way I look at things now. I go anxiety. okay, real problem, hypothetical. A lot. I didn't even realize this. So many anxieties are not real things happening right now. It's the what ifs. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to, and it's all these things about the future. And I used to do it. I used to have an anxiety tree on my fridge. And I used to go, right, real or not real? Not real. Okay, must switch off. And it's like anything. I think people are hard on themselves. And you've got to work on these things. These things like anxiety aren't just going to, you know, you're not going to just take it. I don't believe it. You're just going to take a tablet and everything's going to be fine. You've got to work on it. And you've got to um, understand how the brain works. I think a great thing I um, listened to years ago, and I'm not a big reader, but I'm a big audiobook person, was the chimp paradox. And I listened to it. And something really resonated in my brain about the primitive brain and the intellectual brain and the way that we have this kind of fight or flight mode and you know we all think a saber-toothed tiger is running towards us even if it's a small thing and it's it, the more I read into it the more it's really really helped me but anxiety is not something where there's a magic wand do I still get it now yes I do get it now do I still sometimes get it terribly yes I do sometimes get it terribly but I now know the coping mechanisms that work for me in order to deal with it but anxiety has made me successful because I understand that a lot of people who get anxiety I realize that overthinkers that overthinkers and overthinking is not a bad thing if used in the right way. And you, but you've got to work on it. I tell you, the overthinking is part of this. I'll get about five hours sleep and I, and then I'll, I'll wake up for some reason. And then my brain goes into that mode where I don't think I would call what I'm doing a lot of anxiety. I just think about all the things on my to-do list. And that <laughs> that gut takes me down all kinds of rabbit holes. I'm going to try this. This is a very, very important insight. This Is this a real problem or a hypothetical? Because that is the story we tell ourselves. I'm very big on our recognizing the stories we're telling ourselves. I think it's about, and it's an easier thing said than done. I think, I think you're right. It's about 
being able to recognize the thoughts and sometimes just slowing down that bit. And, you know, I even used to try a technique years ago where I used to say to myself, right, I'm allowed half an hour in the evening of window shopping time and window shopping time is worrying about problems. And I used to say to and someone used this analogy with me once, which I found really useful for anxiety. And they said to me, you have a stress bin and every time you have a worry, it goes in your stress bin and your bin is overflowing. And if your bin gets to a certain level, basically you can't sleep. It interferes with your, your um, sleep. And that's, you know, sometimes when people wake up at night and they can't sleep and they're unsettled and that, that a lot of the time is because their stress bin is overflowing. So people need to be aware of that. If you get into that point where you're getting overwhelmed, and you're feeling it and think to yourself, what can I do? Is that real? Is that hypothetical? And what did someone say to me once that was really useful? Something about the stress. Bit. Oh, it was. So when you sleep at night, you know, sometimes when you lose your keys, you sleep and then you wake up and you just know where they are. And you think, oh, that's amazing. It's because sometimes we think your brain at night tries to figure out and help with all these different problems. Um, so if you lose your keys, your brain's very helpful and tries to remind you where they are and um, recite. But equally, the same thing happens that if you've got 8 million and one stresses all going on at the same time, that's going to interfere with your sleep because your brain can only process so much of this stress and worry at the same time. That is a very, very good point that I fall back on a lot too. There's some neuroscience. I, I kind of have a hobby of reading neuroscience for the fun of it. I know the new, I know what I tried to, I'm saying yes, it in a no, very you're explaining it exactly way, right. Because I yeah, don't know that, the neuroscience behind it, but I know it's a thing. Yeah. I just read a really good article about this recently that we have to get a, a certain amount of good quality sleep. Because while we're sleeping, our brain is organizing our memories. Mm. And so if you want to have a decent memory at all, you've got to get the proper sleep. And then this working on a problem thing. That's one of the ways I do get myself to sleep. I, I love that we wandered into this, this zone about anxiety. One of the things ways that I get myself to sleep at night when I find my brain on that constant, like, whoa, now I'm fully awake, is that I do ask myself, okay, here are the three problems. And I, and then I say brain work on it. I really release those thoughts, those mm. quandaries to the brain to work on it. And I'll tell you, I, it works out all the time. <laughs> you know, what we're talking about here is small hacks, like ways that we've found to cope and, and even come out and thrive with some of some very common life problems for people who are busy, people who, who have suffered setback after setback. You learn these coping skills. And I did not take a break through our conversation, but I, I'm going to go to a break now. This topic we're on right now, this sharing of common obstacles and how we overcome them is something that I'm reminded of. Um, we are hosting something very cool in that light. So we'll take a quick break and I'll tell people about this great coming together where we can all share a bunch of stuff that is important to our doing more than just surviving and going to thrive in the next chapter. So let's take a break and I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles and the podcast you're listening to now, the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I have a question and an answer for you. Have you been hoping the world is actually a lot better than what you see on the news and social media? Well, it is. In fact, it's radically better. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. But on December 1st, 2021, all that changes with the launch of the Goodness Exchange. 
digital landscape where you will see that the world is full of goodness and progress, and we will introduce you to the people making it that way. Bottom line, someone is solving every vexing problem in the world, large and small. And the goodness exchange is where people are coming together to amplify a future that includes all that. No one with good intention and good ideas need feel alone again. Here's what you'll find at the Goodness Exchange. There will be articles about the most amazing things going on in the world that are going uncelebrated. There'll be interviews and events that will send your mind and heart soaring again. And a social media platform dedicated to a culture of kindness, insight, and celebration. A way of um, amplifying a brighter future for us all. And that social media platform is a place where organizations doing good in the world will not have to hold their nose anymore. It can be a trustworthy, respectable place for organizations to host their groups and gatherings and connect with each other. A network of positive networks, if you will. The Goodness Exchange will be a place to find mini courses and masterclasses for personal and professional development, and eventually there'll be a jobs board, and we have a children's website already all teed up. The thread running through it all is that goodness um, and progress is everywhere, and we will help people cultivate what they are uniquely built to contribute to this future for us all. Now, imagine a website with no ads, no games, and no agenda, just a simple and powerful vision of combining our collective strengths to create a future we can all celebrate. The Goodness Exchange will open a new era for us all as individuals, because you're going to find stuff that make your life better instantaneously, and as a collective, because we all want a better future for our children. Who knows what's possible if there was a place on the internet that brought out our best impulses and our collective genius. Join us after December 1st at the Goodness Exchange and start living with less fear, more joy as an individual and as a collective future for humanity. Thanks. Now we're back to the interview. Okay, so we're back. So Jason, we have to wrap our interview up and I I would love for people to know exactly how to connect more with your work. I know that we've told stories and talked about things that probably don't work their way into your own podcast, but do tell people, and you know, I'm not sure that your podcast has a very specific audience. So I'm not sure if that's exactly where you want people to connect with you. Where can people find more about your work? Well, the the podcast is great. It's it's really, it's called The Career Success Podcast. And every week we speak to a different successful person in their own right who's had great career success. And actually, it's such an anecdotal series where, honestly, there's been trials, tribulations, setbacks. A lot of the the, the theme is is, is very similar to your podcast, Dr. Linda. It's people, you know, these stories I hear all the time. I have never had one guest who has ever just come on and said, this was the route to success. I just done this. I became successful and everything was amazing. Never in all 68 episodes has that happened. Every single episode, someone has come through difficulty and so on. So it's really interesting. We speak to everything from people that are on extreme makeover, people that are on TV, people who've won 
Oscar nominated directors, BAFTA winning animators, lawyers. Honestly, we there's no one but soft limits. And obviously yourself, Dr. Lidge has been on there as well. And it, I know, it's I, I just can't tell people enough about the diversity of what Jason is talking about there and the, the scope of life experience that you're sharing there. It, I'm sure that's why you've got such a huge following is that People are looking for connection these days and hearing other people's stories not only gives us a connection and a sense of belonging, but a sense that it's going to be okay. Do you know what? I, and I, t- I totally agree with that. And it's not even, you know, it's not even about career success. It's really about no. people's life stories and people that have achieved and mm-hmm. what people have done to get there. And it, and it's really interesting. And I absolutely love meeting um, and hearing these stories. So it's called the Career Success Podcast. It's on iTunes and all those other places. Um, but if you do want to connect with me, um, quite simply, I'm on LinkedIn, um, Jason and Connolly. It's a weird one. It's C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y. But you had to just uh, get in touch and uh, drop me a line but yeah listen to an episode of the career success podcast it's it's really interesting and there's honestly the guests we get on there now um i'm so blessed and privileged mm-hmm. to be in a position to talk to um such lovely people absolutely and you know i i want to add that jason and i didn't get to talk too much today about this aspect of fun that he brings to everything he does. So I'm pretty sure that we're going to have to have another discussion about how being zany, about being being open to just really just putting yourself out there has been your particular key to success. Maybe we have to pick up that part of the story because one of the things you said to me right near the end was that I, I, I can't impress upon you how successful Jason is. He has this enormous, enormous business recruitment agency yes it's 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 yeah and (laughs) it's it's huge and then he has like i don't know twenty seven thousand followers on linkedin or something crazy wonderful people that really care about connecting with your message and through the thread through the whole thing is that he was willing to be silly he learned about communication and making other people feel good in his presence and here we are I think just on that that one point, it's it's about not being afraid to be yourself and speak out. And I think a lot of people are oh, I'm worried about what people might think. I really do care in some ways what people think, but in a lot of ways, um, the whole brand that I've built, JMC, it, it's been a brand that's we've we've not been afraid in in the legal industry to put a man in high heels and a dress stuff like that because we just don't care um and it's you know it's about being true to who you are and you know i think if you can love yourself then you know other people can love you and um you've got to love yourself you only get one chance um and um that's important you know jason uh thought leader said to me a very interesting thing the other day she does a lot of work around people people finding their purpose and their true calling and and why they matter. And she said, you know, you can spot somebody across a room who has who is living in a way that's very purposeful because they're so darn attractive. They are. And she didn't mean attractive like in a sexually yeah. attractive way. She meant the word attractive, like gravity, like people gravitate towards them. And just the two or three hours I've spent with you in my life, you do bring a level of gravity to being yourself. And my face hurts a little bit from smiling. Ah! 
<laughs> Jason and I have been talking now for almost two hours. So I can't thank you enough. Anything Jason and I mentioned in the show is going to be in the show notes. We do really good show notes. You probably saw me writing furiously through this whole thing. I have four pages of notes. So that will all be down there. And we will leave all Jason's context there. Please go through the rest of your week with the kind of joy and willingness to meet others where they are that Jason obviously has through the story. And keep getting up. Keep getting up and starting over and finding the opportunity in disaster. You want to leave us with one more thought, Jason? Live each day to the max and don't be afraid of failure because failure doesn't matter. What matters is one's ability to deal with the failure. Okay. Have a great week, everybody. I hope you connect with some of the things that we brought to your life here and that you carry it through your own progress. Have a great week.